Well, uh, prayer is a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, that prayer of Daniel's is a, is a great prayer that uh, Ben read for us, but prayer itself is a strange thing. It is at once, I think, the deepest expression of our trust in God and at the same time, one of the things that we find the hardest to do. So many Christians struggle to pray, I don't know, uh, but if I, I suspect if I, if I said, put up your hand if you struggle to pray, I suspect most of us will put our hands up. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. And we don't make the time to pray. There are lots of prayers sprinkled, uh, sprinkled through the Bible that teach us how to pray. Uh, most of the Psalms, for instance, are prayers written down. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray using the Lord's Prayer uh, and Paul constantly included in his letters uh, uh, prayers as well. Uh, In the Old Testament, apart from the Psalms, there are two great prayers, I think. There's the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. If you don't know that prayer, it's in 1 Kings 8. Uh, Go home this afternoon and read it. It's an amazing prayer. But aside from that one, the other great classic is... This prayer here in Daniel chapter 9. This prayer in this chapter is one of God's great gifts to us because it teaches us how to pray and it teaches us what to pray for. Well, the setting of uh, this prayer here in Daniel chapter 9 is the first year of King Darius' reign. Darius is the king who took over at the end of the Babylonian Empire. At the end of uh, chapter 5, you might remember, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was deposed. He was killed during the night and Darius the Mede took over. And it's in that first year of Darius's kingdom that uh, Daniel prays this prayer. That setting is important because the first year of Darius's reign is about 66 years after Daniel and his friends were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and deported to Uh, Babylon. Uh, 66 years is important because, as Daniel says in verse 2, Jeremiah had prophesied that God uh, would send his people into exile for 70 years. Now, if you've still got uh, your Bible open, you might like to turn uh, back a few books to Jeremiah chapter 29. To Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. That doesn't seem right. It's because I'm in Isaiah. That's right. That's why. Uh, So, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, where it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will bring you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile." 
It's one of those classic Bible passages, but it's what's often overlooked is the fact that the subtext of this passage is the wickedness of the people of God. It was the wickedness of the people of God which had caused them to be sent into exile in Babylon. It's because of that that God had judged them and scattered them among the nations. And Jeremiah is saying to those people, you should settle in for the long haul because you'll be there for at least 70 years. Not, Not 70 years as in 70 years to the day, but 70 years is a kind of a shorthand way of saying a lifetime. Psalm 90 says that the years of our life are 70 or 80 if we have the strength. And in Isaiah 23 verse 5, God says that the city of Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. That is the span of a king's life. It's a lifetime that they'll be there. So as Daniel sits in Babylon and as he looks at his calendar, he realises that that 70 years is almost up. And so he does what Jeremiah prophesied. He calls out to God and he prays to God and he seeks God with all his heart. The first great lesson, I think, from Daniel's prayer is that his prayer is informed by God's words in the Bible. Daniel's prayer is informed by his deep reflection on the words of God. So there are, I think, two great dangers for us in our praying. The first danger is that the things that we pray for aren't shaped by the Bible because we don't know what the Bible tells us to pray for. Our our prayers aren't Bible-shaped prayers because we don't know the Bible. I still remember as uh, as a kid praying for new toys. I I still remember, I still remember vividly one night praying for a bike Uh, and it never never came. Uh, But the Bible doesn't tell us to pray for that, does it? It tells us to pray for our daily bread, for the things that we need today. It tells us not to pray for a great feast, for a banquet, but to pray for the food that we need to get through today. The Bible tells us to pray for wisdom. The Bible tells us to pray for God's kingdom to come. That God's name would be honoured by people everywhere. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible tells us to pray for forgiveness. The Bible tells us to pray that we wouldn't be led into temptation. That's a great prayer, actually. Instead, we pray for work. We pray for safe holidays. We pray for a good day. All worth praying for, I think. But a little bit one-dimensional compared to the kind of prayer that Daniel prays here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel prays about the future of the world, about the future of his nation. And he does that because he reflects on the words of God and he says, well, that's what God wants me to pray for. But if the first danger is that our prayers aren't shaped by the Bible because we don't know what the Bible tells us to pray for. The second danger is that our our prayers aren't shaped by the Bible because we take for granted what God has said he'll do. And so we don't bother to pray. So God has said he'll forgive us and we don't bother to ask. God has said he'll give us the Holy Spirit so we don't bother to pray for it. God has said he'll build his church so we don't bother to ask for that. 
God has said that it will equip and raise up people for ministry, but we never think to ask that God will do it. God has said that Jesus will come again, and so we just presume that God will do it without our needing to pray. God has said he will win, he will defeat evil and injustice and sin, and so we never bother to pray. We tend to pray for the things, I think, that we don't know whether God will give us. Strangely, Daniel prays for the very thing that God had promised that he'd do anyway. God had said that he'd bring the people back from exile, and yet that's the very thing that Daniel pleads that God would do. I love uh, In the Magician's Nephew, that book by C.S. Lewis, Uh, One of the girls, Polly, says of Aslan, wouldn't he just know without being asked? To which the horse replies, I've no doubt he would. But I have a sort of idea that he just likes to be asked. And so it is with God. To pray for what God has already said he will do is not superfluous but it's an expression of our deep trust in God. It recognises the godness of God and our utter dependence on him. Well, Daniel knows the words of God in the Bible and so Daniel prays the words of God back to God. And the prayer that he prays, first and foremost, is a prayer of confession. Verse 4, I pray to the Lord my God and confessed... O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Notice two things about Daniel's prayer of confession. First, he says, we... We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have been wicked and rebelled. He doesn't say they, all those other wicked people out there in the nation, it's all their fault. Daniel says we, he's as much to blame as anybody else. Even Daniel, the beacon of virtue. Daniel who went to the lion's den, you know, rather than deny God. Even Daniel says we've sinned. See, sin is not just out there, sin is in here as well. Sin is in the church. We see that publicly displayed at the moment, don't we, in the the Royal Commission into child abuse. Sin is not just out there in the world, no, sin is even in the church. We have sinned, says Daniel. We have done wrong. Second, in praying we, Daniel prays not simply for himself, he prays for other people as well. There's a remarkable statement uh, in the Gospels. Uh, You might remember the story where the four men bring their paralysed friend on on the mat to Jesus. And what's remarkable is it says in the Gospels, it says this, when he saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Not when he saw his faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. But when he saw their faith, 
At first, it seems quite shocking until you realise that James talks about the very same possibility when he says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. To people so bred on individual responsibility as we are, that can seem a little shocking. It's not denying individual responsibility or individual faith. I think when we pray that God would forgive someone and when God does that, I think that that will be demonstrated in that person turning in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Now, I know not everyone will agree with this, but that is one of the reasons that I think it's legitimate to baptise children who are part of a church. Not because we believe they're saved, but because we believe they're being prayed for by a Christian community. We're praying that God would work the gospel out in their lives. And the Bible says that the prayers of God's believing community are powerful and effective. The point is, our prayers that God would forgive the sins of other people are powerful and effective, and so we should pray. Which leads to the next observation about Daniel's prayer. That is, Daniel anchors his prayer not in his virtue or the virtue of the nation, but in the character of God. Notice that Daniel's confession includes the acknowledgement that God is right to do what he's done. God is right to have sent the people into exile. Verse 13, just as it's written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. God had said it would happen. And it did happen. Daniel says God is right to have done what he's done. Compare Daniel's response to our kind of default behaviour. That is, we might be happy enough sometimes to admit that we've done the wrong thing. But then we proceed to give a synopsis of the extenuating circumstances and the reasons why it would be wrong for God or for other people to treat us harshly. We do it with people all the time. So you get angry with someone and you might be happy enough to say, I'm sorry I got angry. <laughs> that's, that's a good start. The trouble is the word that comes next. But... I'm sorry that I got angry, but you need to know that I hardly got any sleep last night and work's been really difficult uh, and, and, and things are falling to pieces, uh, you know, with the kids at school. It's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Yes, Adam said, I ate the apple, but it was the woman that you gave to me. Daniel doesn't do that, though, does he? Daniel says, we've done right, wrong, God, and you are right to judge us. You are right to have sent us into exile. God, you are right to send me to hell. That's what, that's what Daniel says. You would be justified, God, to condemn me to the depths of hell. 
but, O oh God, that you would have mercy. Verse 16, O oh Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath. Verse 17, now, O oh, our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For your sake, O oh Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Verse 18, give ear, O oh God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Why should, what reason does Daniel give that God should forgive? God's righteousness, God's sake, God's great mercy. What reason do any of us have that God should forgive? God, God owes us nothing except judgment. Suppose that you're tried uh, in a court for murder and it's clear that you did it. And the day comes for the sentence to be given. What defence can you give? Why shouldn't you be condemned? Why shouldn't you be sent to, to prison for the rest of your life? Or condemned to death in some countries? You have no hope, no, no excuse. There's no but that you can say. All you can rely on is the mercy of the judge. In our legal system, the judge doesn't really have mercy to, you know, to kind of cover up those kinds of things. Our only hope with God is to appeal to his great mercy. And that realisation is at the heart of grasping the gospel. At the heart of grasping the good news of Jesus is the realisation and the acknowledgement to say to God, God, you'll be right to send me to hell. But by your great mercy in Jesus Christ, forgive me. Or in the words of that great old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. No hope. No hope for Daniel or for us except God's mercy in the death of Jesus Christ. Well, Daniel's prayer teaches us to pray the words of God back to him. It teaches us to confess our sins. It teaches us to anchor those prayers not in, the righteous, not in our righteousness, but in the great mercy of God. But last of all, what does this uh, passage have to say about God's answer to Daniel's prayer? Here's how the prayer will be answered according to the angel that God sends to Daniel. Verse 24, 77 are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore re rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will, make, uh, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, these are some of the most difficult words in the Old Testament to understand. You'll be happy to know. But the main idea is that the 70 years of exile that Daniel was experiencing, that 70 years is a pattern for a much longer period of time after the life of Daniel. It becomes a pattern, that 70 years becomes a pattern for the period of time between Daniel's life and the return of Jesus. And the numbers here are not so much literal as symbolic. There'll be 77s in total. Now in the Old Testament, the, uh, the seventh day of every week was a day of rest. And every seventh year was a year of rest. And every seventh, seventh year, so every 49th year, was, uh, after that was a year of jubilee where slaves would be set free and there'd be a huge celebration and there would be a a big rest uh, in the 49th and the 50th years. So 77s is a bit like an extra huge jubilee. It's uh, 7 times 7 times times 10. It's it's big. And that 77s is divided up into different stages in these words to Daniel. First of all, in verse 25, there'll be seven sevens. So, so 49, there'll be uh, uh, 49 years or seven sevens and 62 sevens. There'll be seven sevens until the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and the temple will be rebuilt, but it will be rebuilt in times of trouble. So seven sevens, it'll be a kind of jubilee, right? After seven sevens was the jubilee. The rebuilding of the temple will be a kind of jubilee, a kind of rest, a kind of celebration. The temple will be rebuilt, but but it's only incomplete. It's rebuilt in times of trouble. It's it's rebuilt in times of distress, you see. And God says to Daniel that that after that rebuilding of the temple, after that kind of that mini jubilee, there'll be this long period of time, the 62 sevens, until the coming of the anointed one. That kind of covers the period of time, the roughly 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the, and the coming of Jesus. At the end of those uh, 69 sevens, Daniel is told the Messiah would be cut off and would have nothing. And that, that promise of God was fulfilled uh, in the death and the burial and the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus, when Jesus was cut off for the sins of the people who trust in Jesus. The enemies of God will destroy the temple in the city of Jerusalem. That was fulfilled uh, when Rome destroyed the temple in AD 70, uh, when they plundered Jerusalem. And then after that, after those 69 sevens, there'll be one seven from the time of the Messiah until the end. That uh, week, so to speak, will be split in half with the second half being a time of particularly acute suffering for the people of God. And then Daniel's told the end will come. God's people will be delivered and God's enemies will be destroyed. So you see, we are, if you like, in the symbolic last week. The last week of the world has been going on since Jesus died and rose again 
until today. Not because God has lost track of time or got mixed up or things haven't worked out as well as he'd hoped, but because God is so patient. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? It's It's the last week of the world and God's drawn it out for so long because God doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the point? God is saying to Daniel this, yes, I've heard your prayer. Yes, I've answered your prayer. But there's a long wait, Daniel, before that becomes a reality. I don't know if you noticed in verse 23, uh, the answer to to Daniel's prayer is given straight away. As soon as you began to pray, uh, the the angel says, uh, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. The answer is given straight away. And yet it's going to take thousands of years for that answer to be fully realised. Talk about waiting for God to answer prayer. We think that if God doesn't answer our prayer two minutes after we've prayed it, that he must have said no. We pray for wisdom, and if we're not wiser tomorrow, we think that we must have to kind of work it out for ourselves. But actually... God might answer that prayer and begin a 20, 30-year project of wisdom-making in your life. It's not that Daniel's prayer hasn't been answered. It has been answered. It's just that you and I and he are waiting for that answer to come to pass. You see, this prayer of Daniel is teaching us to pray for the end. Daniel prayed that God would forgive his people. And God said that he would. But, you know, it took 500 years before that came to reality in in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Daniel prayed that God would deliver his people and God said that he would. And though we've kind of been delivered in part through Christ... We're still waiting for the end to come, aren't we? We're still waiting for just injustice and sin to be, to be done away with. We're still waiting for the creation to be redeemed and restored. For our fallen bodies, our broken bodies to be redeemed and restored. We're still waiting. And thousands of Christians through the history of the world have prayed for the end. And we're still waiting. But as we wait, we pray in the same way that Daniel prayed. Oh God, have mercy according to your steadfast love. It's not that that prayer hasn't been answered. It was answered in Daniel's day. It was answered in the day of Jesus. It's not that that prayer hasn't been answered. It's just that we're waiting for that answer to be fully realised. Daniel prayed because he saw in the words of Jeremiah what God had promised to do. In the same way, as we wait, God calls us to pray that he would complete what he has promised to do in Jesus Christ. Let me pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your incredible patience that you have borne with the sin and injustice and evil of us, of humanity, for so long. Thank you that you have drawn out this last week of the world so that the word about Christ might go out to the ends of the earth, so that the word about Christ, the good news, might go out to people of every tribe and language and people and nation, so that the good news about Jesus Christ might be received by more and more people. Thank you for your incredible patience, Lord, your incredible kindness, your incredible mercy. And yet, Lord, as we wait, as we long for the day, we find it hard to keep going, to keep waiting. We see our sin every day more clearly than the day before. And so, Lord, we pray. As Daniel prayed all those years ago, that you would have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Lord, not according to our righteousness, not for our sake, but because of your great mercy in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.